Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Umar Taraki will join us to discuss such a beautiful thing to behold. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the world caught in a pandemic, societies cut off from one another, trying to survive. Although it may sound like the recent past, it is the setting of a new novel by Mr. Umar Taraki. Mr. Taraki is a Nigerian writer who has been shortlisted for the Miles Moreland Writing Scholarship and longlisted for the Short Story Day Africa Prize. He has penned a new novel entitled Such a Beautiful Thing to Behold. He joins us today to discuss a very fascinating book. And Mr. Taraki, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Well, it is a fascinating novel you've put together here, one which echoes of our current situation, but really explores a lot about our humanity. I'm curious how you came up with the idea for the book. So from start to finish, working on it took about 10 years all in all. And when I started working on, on the central idea, which was about a community ravaged by this mysterious sickness, it was a short story. And, you know, a lot of the characters that are in the book started out in that story as well, uh, even though it changed you know, in many significant ways. But I had reached a point where I was in my early 20s and I had written a couple of novels by then that just didn't really feel were, were true to my sensibilities, were true to what I felt I could achieve or tackle as, as, as a fiction writer. So around that time, I read uh, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. And it's interesting because it's taken me quite a while to kind of begin to connect the dots of how this idea came about. But I was able to look back and I realized that it was relatively shortly after, I think about a year or two after I had read The Road, that I sort of sat down and I'm like, I want to try something different. I want to just, I don't know, you know, and that, that was So I think that was it, really. Um, I can't talk specifically beyond that because the rest, it really just came together. Certainly sort of post-apocalyptic setting, much like the road, and how people deal with extreme situations and almost be anything, but is it somewhat propitious that it happened to be a plague given our current circumstances? Right, absolutely. It's, um, I had already been, I started the short story, and then it took another five years before I felt like maybe I could try and make it a book and then it was another two or three years, and then the pandemic happened. So just sort of looking back at that and just thinking about how certain things sort of, someone may look at it and think like, oh, you know, this is almost prophetic, but really, it's, it, it really just happened. It was a, an honest accident, you know, yeah. Well, I'm sure people would like to know about this mysterious plague that goes through your book here, the gray. Can you describe this illness that pervades your world? So the gray is a, it's a kind of pestilence that it affects the parts of the person that are not flesh. So in a sense, you could describe it as a spiritual sickness that, but it has very concrete 
consequences in that it takes away people's ability to see color. But beyond that, it also just really sucks away. It sucks away joy, and ultimately, it ends in it. It leads the victim um, to commit suicide. That kind of like the culmination of this sickness, and it doesn't have any. There isn't any kind of seeming rhyme or reason to how it affects people. So you know, it's not a communicable disease. You know, in the way that we know communicable diseases to operate and. It doesn't seem to have any any pattern, but for some reason, you know, and, and part of it is that it it affects it. It seems to emanate from this particular community, and it seems to be restricted to this particular community, and the surrounding world kind of sees that, notices that, panics, and sets up a very brutal quarantine. And the other interesting thing about it is that it doesn't affect children. And it doesn't affect children. Absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it doesn't affect it doesn't affect children. Um, and I think I was kind of, you know, and it's, it's interesting how this book came about in that it really, it, it, like I said, you know, it, it took it took me looking back, you know, and beginning to connect the dots. And in terms of in terms of that one influence that I kind of came to recognize as a possible seed for this idea if you've read the His Dark Materials trilogy by Philip Pullman and in the second you know it's a, it's a very vast story and in the second book of that collection there are these the spirit beings that kind of prey on people and they take away their ability to feel anything and particularly you know they're invisible to the eyes only adults can see them but Children are completely blind to them, and once they start becoming adolescents, those that can see them can notice that these spirits or these things begin to sort of crowd and follow this person around because, in a way, they're becoming a bright for harvesting, you know, whatever whatever that is. And so it was sort of looking back and just recognizing that, oh, that may have an interesting sort of point of inspiration because those books have just been, you know, they've, they've been huge for me as a, as a reader. That shift that occurs in, upon adulthood when the world can poison a person in your book. Uh, absolutely, I, the gray is is certainly, and I, I always think about it as a as a kind of a very versatile metaphor. I, um, I, I think because it, it can be interpreted in a number of ways, but definitely one way, you know, is that there is a potential. We have the tendency to lose our capacity to appreciate things the older we get. I think we become jaded. We begin to take things for granted, and we lose that kind of childlike joy that we that we once had as children. Indeed, and your book follows a family, oldest son Dunka, who's um, trying to take on the task of finding a cure for his other siblings. And the book jumps around from points of view. Why did you choose this particular structure for the book? So when I started writing it, writing it as a short story, it was all completely from Dunka's point of view. And by the time I got to Thinking about it as a originally as a novella, you know, I thought it would be a very short book. The structure just crystallized in my head, and I felt that I should just tackle the thing from multiple points of view. And one of the possibilities I was, I was excited about was being able to see an event told from different perspectives or experience the same thing, you know, from a different perspective or two or three different perspectives. You know, and I think it's it's an interesting way of looking at things and thinking about things when you consider that multiple perspectives, that, you know, the multiplicity of perspectives. And so we're able to look at some important events in the story 
through maybe Taishak's eyes, you know, Panshak is Dunka's younger brother, and he's the youngest in the family. And we're able to see the event, the same event from his older sister. In that way, because with each perspective, there are gaps in information, right? And so by the time you're able to switch to another perspective, some of those gaps, you know, some of those questions are answered. And I think it just helps you kind of appreciate just the complexity of the world, you know, and and how important it is to look at things from different points of view. There's the comparison with Rashomon, different narratives, and also the ambiguity about if there is any truth, there's that ambiguity about the world and that's the situation. True, true. Yeah, that's, 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 a, that's an important point. The, I think it's called the Rashomon effect. Well, one of the other themes, I mean, of course, how this community is able to survive or cope and really how it takes this community acting together to deal with the world as it is now. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sad that sometimes it takes very drastic situations for us to begin to dig up the strength and the goodness that we are capable of. And that's what happens in this community. And I think for me, one of the things that was definitely going for was just exploring things that you would consider mundane and how those things just become way more important, you know. So something as simple as how do you make pot of moon, you know, and moon in my mom's language, which is, you know, a language that features prominently in the book and like all the names of the characters, you know, are taken from that language. And moon essentially, it's a, it's a very popular meal in Nigeria. That's kind of like, um, it's made from flour and it's like a stodge, you can eat it with different sauces. And how something as simple as that, you know, and something that you take for granted, people do it every day, millions of households do it every day. But in this situation, it becomes really interesting to the point that you could probably slow it down and you could focus on every single action. And my hope was that, you know, as I'm describing some of these basic processes or basic things, the reader is glued because they understand what is at stake. And so even, you know, in the sense of community and people coming together to kind of help each other and the fact that we, we need each other, you know, it's, we take it for granted, but it kind of situation for us to sit up and say, oh, we actually need each other. Family, the family is important. While you were writing the book, certainly said in Africa and draw a lot from your heritage and building that world and were there parts of it that was novel for me? Back to that time when I had read The Road and I sort of, I just felt that something, something critical had to change in my writing, even though I didn't know what. And I felt like a big part of it was that I kind of needed to sense, quote unquote, I needed to come back home. The first two novels I had written, I wrote my first novel when I was about between the ages of 14 and 17. And that was a story that in total, it probably featured one black man. All the other characters, I had some white characters, I had Japanese characters, you know, I had people from all over the world. And it was kind of a globe, globe trotter. And by the time I came to my second novel, I felt that, okay, maybe I should come back home. But in coming back home, I was still, I think, really drawing from, just from influences, you know, especially high fantasy influences, because that was kind of where my head was at at the time. And I was drawing from them, but not in a very healthy way for me, you know, and, and I, I got to a point where I felt it was quite derivative and that even my own attempts at making it African were not very original. It felt like I was just sort of taking a rubber stamp and, you know, just putting it on and just making it quote unquote African. And so by the time I 
came down to start working on this short story that I was hoping, I don't know, would just yield something different for me. I just felt, I think maybe I just need to be a bit more genuine and I need to be a bit more direct. And I need to be a bit more, a, a bit clearer. So in that sense, you know, it just became a given. It became a given that I was going to draw from the cultural heritage that I was most familiar with, you know, and in this case, that my own mother's culture, the language. I grew up in her part of the country. So that's, you know, that's what I know very, very much. And that's what I'm very comfortable with. And I just began to think of this kind of world as a kind of mythologized Ungas reality. All the characters have Ungas names. The book is written in English, but in my head, you know, they speak Angas. And I'm not a fluent Angas speaker. I probably would have pushed it a bit more, you know, but I was kind of trying to do, I was trying to do what I could with what I had, um, if that makes sense. And so that's just what informed it, and that's how the world came to be. Well, I found it a very vibrant and rich world. It's wonderfully set, and characters are certainly engaging. And But I'm curious, people picking up the novel, what would you like them to take home I want people to just, I think I want people to walk away with a deeper sense of wonder, you know, about about the world, about everyday things, and with a deeper sense of gratitude, I think, for, because honestly, you know, the world is a very beautiful place. Life is beautiful. People are beautiful. And if, if a reader can read this book and kind of walk away feeling that, you know, and a sense of upliftment from that, I, I think my work would have been done, I hope. We were just talking with Mr. Umar Taraki, his new book, Such a Beautiful Thing to Behold. Mr. Taraki, thank you so much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.
Thank you.